Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are present with us, um, in us, uh, for us, through us. And Heavenly Father, we just pray um, that you would help us um, just be attentive uh, to what you are saying, uh, to the movement of the Spirit inside of us, to what you're stirring within us. Heavenly Father, help us to be undistracted, even not distracted by the things that I'm saying, but let us focus in on what you are saying, what you are doing. Um, in the midst of us, inside of us, and through us, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <coughs> so, uh, we're doing the series on the rule of life, and uh, so Steve introduced it last week. It's rule of life, not rules for life. So this isn't um, imposing some sort of legalism upon you. You must do this to be saved or to be God's favourite or anything like that. And it's not kind of seven steps to a, to a brilliant life. That, that's not what this is. We're not kind of working through how you can become instantaneously holy and we're not trying to wrangle God's favor what we're looking at is developing ourselves in God so that um, the analogy is the trellis um, so that we become more consistently fruitful and more abundantly fruitful and that's not for our benefit but that's for the sake of the world the other kind of metaphor or angle that we are looking at is kind of the depth and so just like Steve started off Last week with a bit of uh, an embarrassing story for himself, illustrating why this is necessary. I'm going to start this week with an embarrassing story about myself. And I'm really excited that we're doing this series um, because it's something that has been uh, really speaking to me over the last kind of 18 months, especially the last kind of six months. Um, and one of the things that I realised um, was that we can go through the motions as Christians uh, even really intentionally, really genuinely, really uh, well-meaning. But we can kind of miss the point. There's a lack of depth. There's a lack of substance to our faith. And this is something that I uh, not really kind of depressingly discovered in myself, more kind of just something that I noted about myself and that I wanted to kind of explore. Uh, So I'm not down on myself. I don't feel condemned at all about it. But what I noticed was I've always been a reader, uh, so that's probably not new information for you guys and to ensure that in my house that I get time to read I tend to wake up before any, everybody else anyway that I'm not saying that to get brownie points with anybody or oh, you must be so early he wakes up early um, you know like some of those guys that you know wake up at 4 a.m. to pray for like three hours or whatever that, that's not me I just want to read a book so <laughs> it's the only time I can guarantee silence and so I'd wake up before everybody else I'd have my quiet time I'd read you know the 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 the, the Bible app and go through like the Bible project stuff which we're doing again as a community uh, it's not too late by the way to join in that reading the Bible in a year please join in it's brilliant the discussions are fantastic um, a really good habit actually a really good part of a rule of life to be firstly reading the Bible in a disciplined way but also doing it in community uh, really great aspects of a rule of life but so I do this, I've been doing this kind of habit, I guess, for years. And then I'd have like prayer times and all of this. And it was really funny because the next person who generally comes downstairs, not necessarily that wakes up, but the next person that comes downstairs is Sarah. Now, Sarah wakes up brilliantly. She's like the happiest, like nicest, loveliest, sunniest person first thing in the morning. So she'll bimble downstairs and she'll immediately hunt out somebody um, to go talk to. And so there's me. I'm reading a book. I'm praying. Like, seriously, what are you doing, Sarah? 
Um, I haven't got time for your like loveliness. <laughs> and so one day, I mean, you can already feel the discrepancy about my spiritual life and what's going on, but sometimes I'm a little bit slow. So one day I was praying, you know, our Heavenly Father, it's really great to be in your presence, just to come and be with you first thing in the morning and then just enjoy time with you. And then Sarah comes bimbling in, Sarah, just go away, will you? <laughs> and then God used that as a rather um, pointed explanation to me, because I hadn't already got it over countless years. Mm. Don't you see that there's a discrepancy? Like you are, you are pushing her away in favour of this, but what that actually shows is the lack of depth, the lack of substance a lack of outworking of these things. And so we would call it the fruits, the fruits of the spirit, you know, love, peace, patience, joy, etc. There's a lack, of, there's a definite lack of kind of kindness and gentleness and patience in those moments. So I'm sat there praying for these things and God gives me a perfect opportunity to live these things out. And I bypass it for the kind of dogmatic effort of my habit. Um, and so this really kind of triggered me in a way and I didn't have words for it at the time, but a book that I then became, began reading, so as with God, you know, things kind of happen serendipitously, right? So I started reading a book by Peter Scazzaro, something I really recommend reading, Emotionally Healthy Christianity. And he talks about this lack of depth, whereby, you know, and as Steve talked about last week, we can have these wonderful prayer times, these wonderful times of really diving in the word or community, and then something happens. Uh, somebody cuts you up at a junction like with Steve or your daughter comes in and disturbs your holy time or whatever it is and then the wrong things come out which show this lack of depth and you know I've been a Christian for a quarter of a century how old do I feel and yet this is still where I'm at and it's not a matter of self-condemnation it's just like I've noted that as a characteristic in myself and something that I want to change I want to be a better father to my daughter I want to be a more patient person I'm sure Steve doesn't want to swear at people that cut him up at junctions and it's not a matter of self-condemnation it's just a matter of I want to grow to be more like Jesus I want to follow Jesus consistently and more I want to bear more fruit more of the time I want to go deeper and so um, I'm really excited about this series because it's not because I'm not standing here because I know it all because by that story alone you know that I don't know it all but it's something that we can share as a community and kind of um, enable and encourage one another to love and good deeds like it says in the New Testament so if you want to go to the next slide uh, today oh, I stripped out all the, the fonts I had some nice fonts um, it's because it's gone back onto a Mac isn't it See, this is the frustrating thing. Steve like creates all this like cool like I don't know what you call it like a, a branding, yeah. and then because I use like Windows and regular PCs, like I don't have the fonts that he has that are native to the Mac. So then I have to hunt down ones that are similar, and then they go back on a Mac and get stripped out again. So that's 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 annoying. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so today I'm talking about time, and next week Steve's going to be talking about kind of creating habits. So there's that essence of time so I don't want to dive too deeply into uh, how we form time or how we create these habits or practices but what I want to do is talk just about the importance of time uh, to these to this rule of life and again just to stress we're talking rule of life not rules for life okay uh, so really what I want to dig into is just attention and patience those are aspects of time and when I talk about attention and patience these are two aspects of how we consider time uh, attention is time in the moment being fully present being fully dialed in and patience is the unfolding of time allowing things to take their time 
Um, so as all good stories, as all good things, begin at the beginning. <coughs> I'm going to begin with Genesis 1 if you have Bibles or virtual or real. Um, both acceptable to me. I don't discriminate. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, virtual nor real um, in the kingdom of God. <coughs> so Genesis 1. Thank you. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters, or the Spirit hovered over the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. <coughs> So we're probably all very familiar uh, with Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account. Uh, one of the things, again, coming from the communal reading that we're doing, we obviously did doing the Bible in the year, we started in Genesis, and one of the things that I'd never noticed before was that not only did God call forth existence, the stuff, the thinginess of being, he also created time. And the idea there is that in the beginning, so the, all these time-related words, beginning, then, there was evening, there was morning, the first day. <clears throat> so creation not only unfolds the stuff coming out of chaos, the formless void, the chaotic wastelands, time came in that, that point as well. And what, what really struck me was how ordered and how measured and how deliberate God was about what he did. There was no frantic, creative outburst of God. There wasn't a sudden flurry, oh, I've got to do this, and then I've got to do that. I'll wait there. If I don't create the land first, there'll be nowhere for them to stand, so I've got to do this and then that thing. So oftentimes when we get, in our, you know, when our creative juices are flowing, there's a flurry, there's a frantic energy about it. But what God did was he, it was very measured. So the idea behind this in the Hebrew is, is there was chaos, there was this disorderliness, and God brought forth order. But the thing was that God didn't just bring forth order, the means of bringing forth order was ordered. You know, as we know, we believe in the infinitude of God. He could have done it like that, like the Big Bang. Just an explosion of energy, and then suddenly all of the stuff of existence existed. But instead, God took his time. He paused. He reflected on things on every single day. God said, let there be this thing. And then there was this thing. And then God looked at it. And then God considered it. And then he decided that it was good. And then, and then there was evening and then there was morning, the day. There's a, there's a, there's a measured beat. There's a delightfully calm cadence to creation. God did not act in a flurry. Time was not a pressure for him. Time was a friend. God was not straining forwards in anxiety. I've got to get to the next thing. God was not looking back in regret. Oh man, if I'd only done this. God was measured and orderly and deliberate. His attention was in the moment. He wasn't carried off somewhere else. Oh man, I'm going to build this hill because it's going to be so sweet when I make sheep because they can go around this hill. God wasn't like that. He was attentive to it, and he, and he was reflective about every moment of his time. <clears throat> and the cool thing was, was that he took six days. Could he have done it in one? Could he have done it in an instant? Yes, 
But part of the unfolding of the orderliness of things was the orderliness and beat and cadence and rhythm of the actual unfolding of things, which is beautiful because it shows that God was not mastered by time. God was not in a hurry to get anywhere. He just delighted in exactly what he was doing at that moment. He knew he wasn't, um, his, 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 he wasn't insecure about it. Oh, I've got to get all this stuff done. He just did it. And, and part of the way he did it was woven into the warp and woof, the fabric of creation. There's a rhythm, there's a season. There'll be seed time and harvest. There'll be the seasons. You know, Ecclesiastes goes on, there's a time for everything. And it's woven in because of the measured way that God approached time. He was attentive to it, but he was also patient. He didn't start thinking about day six on day one and fretting about it. He knew that he had time. He was relaxed about how it unfolded. And then the cool thing is, yeah, we know how it ends as well. And um, so if we go on to the next slide, rest. Rest was woven in there. So if we go to the next slide again, sorry, Lydia. So the creation account in the Hebrew Bible, Genesis 2, 1 to 3 is actually part of chapter 1. <clears throat> Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished. There was an end. And, there, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work. So in case you're fuzzy about what's going on, God finished the work on the seventh day and he rested. And the writer is going to squeeze in saying these words as many times as he can in three verses. He finished from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, which day was it? It was the seventh day. And he hallowed it because what did he do on that day? He rested. From what? From all of the work that he did. Right. So again, let's just remind ourselves. If the Bible didn't include these three verses, we probably wouldn't notice we'd probably have six day weeks, right? But the, the writer is deliberately trying to communicate something. Part of the warp and woof, the fabric of creation is this other day. And as the writer is at pains to tell you, it's the seventh day. And what did God do on the seventh day? He rested from what? From the work of the other days. Now, I'm sure we're going to go on and talk about this in the context of a practice of Sabbath or slowing down. But really, in the context of just talking about time, this is an intrinsic part to the rest of creation. The author could have left that out and we'd have probably not even been that bothered. We wouldn't have noticed. But it was important to tell us that six days God did this thing that he called work, that he expended creative energy and there was another day where he deliberately did something completely different. God was not mastered by time. He didn't um, feel insecure about what he'd done. Now God, being infinite, could have indefinitely gone on creating. There didn't have to be a time when God said it is finished. God didn't have to put a full stop there. He could have carried on. For infinity, creating infinitely, because he is infinite. And that's the tendency that we have as humans. If we have a creative burst, we're going to milk that moment. You know, so if you're writing a song or if you're writing SQL code, it's like, right, I'm in the, I'm in the zone. Like, I've got to use this while I've still got it. And there's that frantic anxiety about creativity, right? But not for God. I'm okay. Did six days. There's enough stuff. 
full stop, I'm finished. You see, part of the management of time that God has, part of the orderliness, the deliberate nature that God has about time, is that he's satisfied. He doesn't have an inexhaustible appetite for more things. He can say, that's enough. I can stop. I'm happy. I'm okay. My character is not wrapped up in the accumulation of stuff. And in the modern Western world, that should speak volumes to us. God's okay. I could have had an infinite amount of things for infinity, but six days is enough. I'm okay. The stuff that I've done in six days, that's okay. Full stop. I'm going to rest now. Down tools. I'm not going to work today. And I don't feel pressured to do it. You know, the Holy Spirit isn't there nudging the Father. That's so lame. (laughs) You're exhausted. Come on. God is not frantic or anxious about that. He is satisfied. He is okay. He is fine in himself to stop. He is satisfied. And the other thing that ties into that then is that God is secure. He hasn't found his identity in that. The externalising, and bearing in mind, creation, as we would believe it, as our doctrines tell us, is a self-expression of God. It's the outpouring of what's inside him. But he's not so consumed by the externals of it that he has to keep going. Oh man, they're going to laugh at me if I don't keep going. (laughs) These are the ancient Middle Eastern myths. Oh no, Marduk, he's going to take the mickey out of me because I didn't create enough stuff. God's fine. And he's so fine about it that there's a whole day dedicated to him not doing those things that underlines it, that puts an exclamation mark at the end of creation. I'm okay. I'm secure. I didn't have to keep going. I can stop. Time does not master me. I master time. I'm deliberate and considered and secure about everything that I am doing. And the cool thing is this, if you want to go to the next slide now. One of the reasons I'm so excited about this series is because it overlaps massively with the things that we've been talking about in terms of mental health and its intersection with theology. Um, So much so that I've used this verse in a blog before about having a sound mind. Not only did God rest, not only was he satisfied and secured, which again you can kind of feel the overlaps with mental health, our continual drive to demonstrate and prove ourselves. In Exodus, the account in Exodus when God talks about the Sabbath, In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Now, that word refreshed, I love that word refreshed, because it comes from the Hebrew word nephesh, which just means self. I did a whole thing about what the self is, but it just means self. So actually, if you were to read that literally, it says God rested and he was re-selfed. He reminded himself of who he actually was and where his value lay. As in, it didn't lie in all of that other stuff. It didn't rely on the externals, the output. He wasn't considered that. And what makes this so potent is that it's an exodus. Because actually, what did the Hebrews find themselves? Their value was measured in seven-day production of bricks mm-hmm. under Pharaoh. God is definitively not like Pharaoh. Our existence, our value as people... Our value as human beings isn't in the accumulation of stuff, isn't in our ability to endlessly keep going and prove ourselves, isn't in our outputs and the externals. We are intrinsically valued before all of that and after all of that. And we see that in the life of God. (coughs) And so moving on then, 
because we are Hope Springs and we always talk about Jesus, we have to talk about Jesus. Because it's all well and good seeing it in Genesis and Exodus, but we have to see it in the life of Jesus because Jesus is the one that we pattern our lives after. Jesus is the one that we are following. Jesus is the way, the truth and the light. Jesus is the revelation of God. So if we don't get it from ancient theology coming from Genesis and Exodus, then maybe we get it by looking at the life of Jesus. Um, So we're going to look at Mark 1. And again, we see this same deliberate nature about what Jesus does in time, how he pays attention, how he is patient, how he is not governed and ruled by the externals, how he doesn't find his value elsewhere, and how he uses time demonstrates his security and his satiation. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, just in case you were fuzzy about it being early, it's still dark, it's not even dawn. Jesus got up and left the house and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him and they found him and they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else then, to a nearby village so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Now, first of all, notice um, how holy I am because I do this as well. Uh, No, that's not what I'm talking about. Very early in the morning. So Jesus still has this habit of punctuating all of his activity with these periods of rest and refreshment. Being re-selfed, reminding himself of who he is, where his value lies, having time with the Father. And he went to a solitary place. Um, And in case you wonder where it says solitary place, that is the same Greek word as wilderness. So when Jesus faces the temptations at the wilderness and what happens in the wilderness is Jesus doubles down on who he is and he comes out in the power of the spirit. He comes out empowered. So there's a suggestion there that the place of the wilderness is the place where the spirit meets him and he comes out empowered for the next thing. So there's that idea of being re-selfed, refreshed, ready to go again where he prayed. Jesus didn't have to do that, you know. He was fully God and fully man. He didn't need to carve out time away to speak to the Father because the will of the Father was the will of Jesus Christ in that moment. Okay? But Jesus did. Just like God didn't have to take a day off. But he did. Jesus didn't have to carve out this time to seek the will of God or something like that. What's my calling, Father? He didn't have to go to a seminar on it. He didn't have to have prayer time because he's in constant communication with the Father. But he did. And the writer underlines that Jesus used time. Jesus was deliberate about time. Time didn't run away with him. He didn't have to squeeze it in. He was deliberate about it. And I love this next bit. So this, we're talking about the deliberate nature of how Jesus uses time. All his followers came. Everybody's looking for you. The ministry has taken off. We are getting likes on social media. Momentum. We've got momentum. Let's like lean into the momentum. You know that kind of business speak, lean into momentum. Um, everyone's looking for you. What does Jesus say? Oh, yeah, yeah. Let, let's, let, let's capitalize on that. Let's go get a big tent. Let's, get, let's put up a better website. Let's, how many downloads we've got for our podcast? Let's go somewhere else. Yeah, I'm done with that. Let's, let's, let's move on. Jesus is not governed by everything that's going on. He's not governed by the externals. His existence, he's satisfied with what he's doing. He's quite happy following his path. He's not insecure. Oh yeah, man, I better like raise this crowd, you know. 
Because how am I going to get any credibility when I ride into Jerusalem in three years' time unless I've kind of mobilised the, the countryside in my favour? No, let's go somewhere else then. And he does this a lot. You know, he deliberately freaks people out to get rid of the crowd. <laughs> you know, what are you doing? This is not how you build a good Christian ministry, seriously. This is why I've come. He is deliberate. He knows. He is secure. He's not resting on those externals to drive his time, to use his time, to, to fill his time. He's not juggling many things. He's not pulled forwards in anxiety about what might happen next. And he's not looking back and regret, oh man, if only I'd leaned into that momentum. If only I'd ridden the wave. No, he's deliberate about his time. And so now I want to talk about super champions as an example. So this is an analogy. Now, I've got to caveat this right up front where I hate um, notions of Christianity talking about success. I really despise that connotation of Christianity and success. But I am going to talk about super champions with all of the kind of... Um, things that you could associate with that. Now, super champions is a sports psychology term. Um, you might know this about me, Luke. I kind of love sports psychology because it overlaps with like data analytics. It's really fascinating to see athletes. So these are people who are in the 0.0001% of their field operating in that skill set. They can execute their skills at a super elite level. And so... What drives these people? How do they do that under the pressure that they're under? I'm, I'm always fascinated by this stuff. And so uh, there was a psychological study done in the early 2000s about just looking at elite athletes, what sets them apart. And so um, they kind of came up with these categories. So a super champion is somebody who operates at the elite level of their sports. That means that they are in their national teams. They're winning kind of the top medals. They're doing it for a long period of time consistently and then there's another category called champions and so champions are people that are operating at the top level of their sport but they're not operating either for a long period of time so their career isn't doesn't have longevity or they're not actually kind of achieving the top levels that they could so you might think about it like a, a Manchester United or a Manchester City or, or a Liverpool versus players that play for a Brentford or, or a Fulham Okay, they're at the elite level. These are players that will still get picked for their national teams, but they're not winning all of the top stuff. And then there are the almost, which is such a derogatory term by comparison, right? Super champions, champions, and then, yeah. But the almosts are people that, when they were young, actually had prodigious talent. And they made it to play professionally or compete professionally. But they're kind of, they're the championship level, they're the league two, they're the, they're the people that kind of come to the competitions, the tournaments, so say, look, it was judo. They'd be there, but there'll be people that don't actually place in the rankings. And they, and they kind of analysed, um, uh, you know, they, they did all sorts of kind of um, interviews and everything with all of these people that fulfil three types of categories. And there were a couple of things that kind of became apparent. One was that super champions, as opposed to champions, it, are internal. They're almost fanatical about their obsession about their chosen sport, but their whole drive is internal. So they don't care about what anybody else is doing. They want to get the best out of their abilities. And so they put the time and effort. They'll be the first person on the training pitch. They'll be the last person to leave. They'll turn up to pre-season, before the pre-season, all of these things. They will, um, and they're driven by this internal need. Champions, on the other hand, 
they have this talent, they have the ability, they will put the effort in most of the time, but they do it because they want to be better than that guy, or that person, or that girl. So they have kind of an external focus. How many championship medals have I got versus that person? And the almosts are people that probably, in their young days, before they started a professional athletic career, were the people with the most talent. But they didn't want to put the time in. So in the early days, actually, they rose to the top because they, they were naturally gifted. But when, things, when they started moving in more and more elite areas, regions of their, of their uh, chosen sport, they would fall away because then they had to put the effort in to match their talent. And then, even then, they'd only put the effort in when something was at stake. So, for example, a non-league uh, player or a player in lower leagues would only bring out their A game if they were playing in a cup tournament where they could stand to gain credibility. And it's really, really, really interesting. And I am going to bring this analogy back to Jesus and God. But um, the next one, I want to talk about two people, two of my favourite sports personalities. Ben Stokes, who's a cricketer. He's the England captain for the test team. And I'm going to talk about Marcus Rashford in a minute, who's absolutely one of my favourite footballers. So you can't quite see what's going on here. This is just before a test match. This is the boundary of the cricket field. And this is Ben Stokes right here. So this is, this is just before the start of the game. This isn't a training session. This is just the five minutes that he's got before the game. And he's literally on the boundary, jumping up, making a catch, practicing this ridiculous catch. Right, so this is so if he goes over the boundary, then it's a six. So he has to make this catch and catch it within the boundary. And this isn't again a coaching session or anything, he's just got one of the other coaches smashing a ball to the boundary to see if he can catch it. And he does this loads of times. And the commentator just took a, a photograph out of the commentary box just to show what Ben Stokes is doing. And you can't quite see it, but what it says up here, highlighted in yellow, he says he practices doing incredible things. I love that line there. So if you go to the next one, he practices doing incredible things. You see, Ben Stokes uh, always been an amazing talent. He's an all-rounder, so he can bowl really well. He's an outrageous batsman. Um, he's an absolutely gunfielder, um, as that practice shows. But he's, a, he's an amazing intellect about the sport as well. The way he thinks about the sport, I don't know if you follow England cricket at all, but he is, him and the, the new coach have revolutionised the way test cricket is played. It's a step change in how it's played. They're just like, we'll just go out and bat as hard as we can for as long as we can. And it's just outrageous. There's no kind of blocking and taking five days to get 100 runs. They play a test match like it's a T20 game. And nobody's ever thought of doing it before. I don't know why. But they're just like, let's just do it. Let's just follow through on our convictions. And the other thing about Ben Stokes and this thing about super champions is, is that when they come to challenge, when they face trauma... They're not derailed by it. Instead, they see it as a point of leaping off, of learning. They see it as a wilderness experience. So Ben Stokes, a couple of years ago, he was involved in an altercation at a bar where he uh, knocked somebody out. Um, I mean, in his defence, this person was being vocally abusive to um, a homosexual person in the bar, and Ben Stokes took him outside and beat him down, basically. He was banned from cricket. He was banned from playing. And instead of um, going off the rails 
He used it as a learning opportunity. He realised that his mental health wasn't on point, that he was very reactionary, that he was very fiery. And so he spent these wilderness years working on himself. Fast forward a couple of years, he's the captain of the England test team, being hailed as cricket's hero. He's achieved so much in the last couple of years in all formats of the sport. It is ridiculous. This case in point, in, in the test before the one that that picture was taken, he performed a ridiculous catch. So somebody slogged the ball to the boundary. He leapt backwards over the boundary, caught the ball in the air, had the presence of mind to throw it back in to play. He landed and ran back in and caught the ball. The sheer ability of reflex and presence of mind to do that is something that only like a handful of people in the world can actually do. What this photo shows is that that was no fluke, that was no moment of prodigious divine talent just shining through. It's something he practices. He invests time and patience. And in the England cricket camp, there's a rule or, or kind of a phrase, an axiom, you only get good at something by performing at least 10,000 reps. It only becomes natural to you after that repetition, that patience, that attentive, deliberate use of their time. If it's, if it's playing a straightforward defence, they're going to play it 10,000 times to groove it. If it's some ridiculous catch on the boundary, the probably only the chance to do it in a test match is probably only one in every like 20 or 30 test matches. Ben Stokes not only gives time to his batting, his bowling, his regular fielding, he finds time five minutes before the game starts to do that. He is deliberate and tuned in, attentive. And the next person I want to talk about is Marcus Rashford. Um, so again, Marcus Rashford uh, had a couple of terrible years, came on in the Euros in the final. He was brought on deliberately to take a penalty kick, which he missed. He got so much racist abuse and just general abuse for missing. Over the pandemic, he got, again, laudably caught up in child food poverty. The next season, he was clouded in his thinking. He was distracted by kind of stuff going off field. You know, he was arguing with politicians and then trying to play football. The moment of absolute derailment for him came at the Euros where he was barely picked. Uh, he came on to take the penalty, missed, faced lots of abuse, lots of wilderness time. Uh, barely made it into the Man United team the next season, coming off the bench a lot. Didn't really perform very well. <clears throat> this is from his Instagram feed uh, over the last summer, so summer 2022. Uh, the article that this comes from called this Marcus Rashford's pre-season. -pre so this is before any other footballer has gone back to play football or to train at all. Marcus Rashford paid for himself to go to Portland in the States to the Nike facility to do some analysis on his capabilities. Again, see how he's internally driven. He's not competing with anybody. He's trying to be the best version of him. What he's got here is you can't really see it, but this is a video. He's got um, some sensors tied to him to, to test his explosiveness in sprinting. 
<coughs> he spent lots of time at the night facility doing lots of analysis about him. And this is the sort of, these are the sorts of things that we're talking about that he was analysing. They were doing data capture and analysis of certain aspects of his game. One was sprint takeoff speed. Okay, that's what he was testing there. You probably can't read that. He was losing one tenth of a second by starting on the back heel. He is trying to improve his sprint by one tenth of a second. Can you imagine how elite that is to be having to focus on the one tenth of a second to improve his game? He's also doing stuff about his peripheral vision, his free kick taking. I don't know if you saw the game. Oh, what game was it the other week? It was for England, wasn't it? He took the free kick. That outrageous free kick. That wasn't fluke. That wasn't luck. That wasn't a moment of divine inspiration. He had been practicing that before any other footballer had gone back to practice. They worked out how he could change direction at pace and shaved off 0.1 second on a change of direction at full pace. <clears throat> Ridiculous stuff that he's been working on before any other footballer came back. And now, this season, he scored in every game for like 15 games. He even scored yesterday against Man City. He wasn't driven to be better than anybody else. He was driven by this internal focus. So he gave time, attention, and patience to the practice. You see, he didn't just do it once in training and be like, oh, now that. He did it thousands of times. He was there before everybody else training, and he was there after everybody else was training. He was paying attention to what he was doing. He was getting feedback about how he was going. He gave time and attention to it. He gave patience. And he wasn't motivated by being better than anybody else. He was motivated by challenging, developing himself. Or we could say it, he was challenging himself to be fruitful consistently and abundantly. And now Manchester United, as much as it grieves me to say it, are reaping the benefits of his fruitfulness. He has made himself better, but people around him are benefiting from it. So, on to the final section. So one thing I wanted to talk about is that internal drive. God, the Father in creation, was secure in himself. He was satisfied. His value, his ability was not external. It was internal. He was secure in himself. And to prove it, he reselfed himself when he rested. He gave time and attention, patience to these things. Jesus was not driven by the externals. Oh, we're gathering momentum, we're building a following, are we? Let's go somewhere else then. He was secure and he was deliberate about how he used his time. Time did not master him. He was not driven by externals. He was driven internally. Ben Stokes, Marcus Rashford, both faced trauma and overcame it because they saw it as a challenge to be taken hold of, a learning experience to make themselves better, to develop themselves. They're not competing against anybody. They're They're seeking to be fruitful more and more, consistently and abundantly. So they're executing their skills every time. And they're executing them more. Okay, so consistent and abundant. And so that's what this is. The rule of life is about consistently bearing fruit. So in those moments when somebody cuts you up or there's no short line at the, at the, the supermarket, when, you, when you're in a real rush and all you want to do is buy bread. 
You can be consistently patient. You can be consistently gentle. You can be consistently kind. And that overflowing, that abundant nature of that internal drive, you're not competing against the person that just cut you up. You're not, I'm not competing against Sarah for the time in the morning. You're not competing against somebody in the quicker queue on the motorway or the supermarket. It's this internal drive to be fruitful, to bear this fruit. So I'm just going to finish with this final verse. Um, so if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, <clears throat> not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry, by the way. So a few things here. We're not doing this to win God's favour. We're not doing this as rules for life. Um, we're not doing this to be saved. We have already been raised with Christ. That's already done. You don't have to do anything. The, the prodigal moment of your talent, like the almosts, has already occurred. Now, you're not going to be kicked out of heaven if you just rest there and you end up playing for Stafford rather than Man City. Okay? You're already in. That's not a problem. God already loves you. God's not going to love you more because you do this stuff. You might realise that God loves you more, but God's not going to actually love you more. There's nothing you could do. He's not going to love you less if you don't do it. You have already been raised with Christ. Past tense. Therefore, set your minds on certain things. Be disciplined, deliberate. Give time, attention and patience to these things. For you have died past tense it's already done Christ has accomplished it the grace has already been poured out for you you have already died and your life is already hidden in Christ by doing this you're not going to be more hidden in him as if you find a secret closet at the back of Christ somewhere where you can hide even more than you already hidden it's already happened when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. It's already done. That's already guaranteed. You're not winning anything new. But it's about this internal drive to bear more fruit, to set your mind on things, to realise that this is the truth of your life, to realise that this is the value of your life that's already happened. You have, you have already died, past tense, therefore put to death, present tense, continuous. You're already dead, but keep putting to death these things. There is a practice, an outworking, an attentiveness, a patience. If you continue to read Colossians, it does come on to more positive things, like be alive in these things, rather than put to death these things, but only this many verses would fit on the slide. So there's a practice that goes with it, for this internal drive to... Be deeper in the faith, to be more fruitful, more abundant, more of the time. And it's not about competing. We're not trying. We've been in Hope Springs long enough to know that we're not competing to have the biggest church in the city. We're not going to go around pointing, oh, I've got more fruit than you. Mine are pears or anything like that. We're doing it because this is what we are called to do. We are called to be. Jesus loves us. We already know this. What happens if we've realised this, really? We move in that fruit. So, I'm going to leave you with that exhortation. 
think about giving time, attention and patience to de- going deeper, to being more fruitful, to pressing into God, to developing habits, to building a trellis, a structure, a framework in our lives to enable us to better produce fruit, to be more fruitful more of the time. So, Heavenly Father, uh, sift through all of the stuff that I've said. I've said so many words, God. But I pray for one word of your spirit to impact us, to change us, to help us, to move us along. So, Heavenly Father, by your spirit, help us to be continually transformed by the renewing of our mind. Help us to be restoried in your stories about your good creation, about who we are in you, rather than the stories that we get told in the world, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.